You're listening to Sermons by the Park, the weekly podcast from Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. I'm Pastor Aaron Shepard, and our current sermon series is called Miraculous. We're turning to the stories told in Scripture of Jesus's seemingly impossible deeds, like turning water into wine, walking across the surface of a lake, even saving the soul of a sinner. If you've ever wondered what to believe about these strange things, if you've ever wondered how could this be, or what it could mean for us who live in a world that seems to be devoid of such miraculous things, well, I invite you to listen and to wonder. Here's this week's message. first scripture reading is Psalm 103, verses 1 through 13. It'll be a reading from the New Living Translation. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives me all my sins and heals my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all those who treated unfairly. He reveals his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. Good morning. I'm the TBD. (laughs) So let the words of our mouths and of the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable to thee. O Christ, our Lord and our Redeemer. The second scripture is John 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, standing, there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, drawn the water, knew. The steward called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I know Aaron was looking forward to doing a sermon about this marriage at Cana. Well, at least you got to do the children's sermon. <laughs> so thank you for allowing me to do it. So John was not the type of man that you would expect to find at a wedding. With his scratchy clothes and unusual diet, he was more of a thundering prophet, austere and ascetic, far removed from the usual events of daily life. If he was invited to a wedding, it would be unusual for him to go. But the fourth gospel records that Jesus was invited to one and he went. According to John, Jesus was the life of the party. We don't learn why Jesus was there, <clears throat> but his mother seems to have played a significant role in the affair. When the wine was all gone, um, she had some responsibility and authority over the occasion. She spoke to her son about it and even had the authority to tell the servants to do whatever he commanded. Perhaps it was the wedding of one of Jesus' siblings. We don't know. After all, Jesus is referred to as Mary's firstborn son. We don't really know much about who came after him. Where was Joseph in all this? Well, another legend says that he had died by this time, and that may be why Jesus stayed at home for so long perhaps until he was 30 or so, carrying on the family business, fulfilling the duties of a firstborn son. At any rate, I think that Jesus was invited to the wedding party at Cana in Galilee because he was a fun person to have at a party. In the New Testament, you can trace Jesus's progress through the country by the trail of joy that he left behind. Wherever he went, sorrows were healed, shadows lifted, diseases cured, spirits raised. 
One of the harshest accusations his enemies made against him was that he seemed to be having too good a time to be taken seriously as a rabbi. He was always mingling with the wrong kinds of people, going to weddings and parties and such things. Jesus loved life and couldn't understand those people who did not. He brought joy wherever he went. For him, life was a good gift from a loving God. It was to be savored and enjoyed to the fullest. He was continually amazed that so many people seemed to be wasting their lives moping around and only snatching at the leftovers of life when God's sumptuous banquet was spread before them. That was Jesus' favorite metaphor for the kingdom of God, a banquet specially prepared with you as the guest of honor. In Acts 2, it is written that Jesus' radiance rubbed off on those first disciples so much that at first people thought that they were drunk with wine and when they were merely intoxicated with the joyous love of God. What happened to this picture of Jesus down through the ages? It's not the usual picture most people have of Christ and Christianity. H.L. Mencken referred to Puritanism as the haunting feeling that somebody somewhere might be enjoying himself. (laughs) Jesus would never have understood that kind of religion. Where did we go wrong? Playwright Henrik Ibsen in the play Emperor and Galilean, written in 1873, has Julian, the pagan emperor of Rome in the fourth century, say, have you looked at these Christians closely? Hollow-eyed, pale-cheeked, they brood their lives away. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. That may describe some Christians, but it certainly doesn't describe Jesus Christ. Jesus would not have recognized that version of Christianity. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he was, certainly. But the primary impression he gave his contemporaries was that of unspeakable joy. In John 15, he says, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I can imagine that Jesus would have been an eagerly sought-after guest to grace any party. Often he said that the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast to which we have all been invited. Have we forgotten what lies between that cross and Bible or under it? It's a banquet table. It's set with candles and flowers. How great. There is a group of Christians who have not forgotten their modern-day Christians, and they call themselves the Fellowship of Merry Christians. And you can Google them to learn about their organization and even to become a member. Their publication is titled The Joyful Noise Letter, It's filled with good, clean humor, cartoons, and jokes, which can even be used in the pulpit. 
On their website is a portrait of Jesus. I recommend you go and look at it. Um, It's as he might have appeared at the wedding. Swarthy, Middle Eastern for sure. Smiling, relaxed, and so approachable. So Jesus may have been the most popular guest at the wedding, but now comes the difficult question. What did he do there? John tells us that it was at this wedding in Cana of Galilee that he performed the first of his signs. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. What was this sign? The story seems pretty straightforward. But in John's Gospel, we must always remember that there is more than one meaning for the events that he describes. When he writes of events, whether in Galilee or in Jerusalem, he knows whereof he speaks. For instance, he knows the customs of Jesus' day very well. He says that the wedding at Cana took place on the third day. That was the traditional day for Jewish weddings. They were usually held on Tuesday night, the third day of the week. Like the Quakers of more modern times, they would never have thought of using the pagan names for the days of the week. Sunday for the sun god, Monday for the moon god, Tuesday for an ancient Teutonic god, etc. No, they used first day, second day, third day, and so forth. And weddings were always on the evening of the third day. A wedding feast was considered to be very important in any family. They began with a big banquet, and the wine was an essential part of those festivities. Wine was a symbol of joy. Drunkenness was considered a great disgrace, and they actually drank their wine diluted with water. At any time, failure of provisions would be a problem because hospitality was considered a sacred duty. For provisions to fail at a wedding party would be a humiliation that would haunt the host family for generations. So Jesus came at the right time on the evening of the third day of the week, and as soon as he arrived, there was a problem. The wine had run out. Perhaps it was even the addition of Jesus and at least five of his early disciples that caused the shortage. Mary comes to her son and tells him about the problem. What did she expect him to do about it? Perhaps she was hinting that since he and his fishermen friends had caused the problem, the least they could do would be to send out for more wine. One scholar even suggests that it was a broad hint that Jesus and his motley crew should leave. Many consider the exchange between Jesus and his mother at that point to be surprisingly rude, but that's a topic of a totally different sermon. And indeed, Jesus did handle the situation. Some sort of miracle happened, and there was wine for all. Why would Jesus perform such a mundane sign when during his temptations in the wilderness, he specifically rejected the offer to try to win the world by doing miraculous signs. It seems in character that he would not turn stones into bread for his own benefit, 
but he might very well turn water into wine to spare a poor family of embarrassment. Why would we doubt the miracle? Every spring in the vineyards all over the world, God does the same thing, drawing water up out of the ground, transforming it into the pungent juice of the grape. C.S. Lewis argued that the God who through the natural order can turn water, soil, and sunshine plus grapes into juice, which under proper conditions can become wine, could through Jesus Christ shorten the process. Or maybe we should just leave it to the poet who wrote, the modest water saw its God and blushed. But John seems concerned about something deeper here, something more than just a, a, a miracle. For John, was, for John, this was a sign that is a teaching aid, something pointing to something deeper. It seems as though in his gospel, John never wrote an unnecessary or insignificant detail. He says that there are six stone water pots. Why six? According to the Jewish tradition, seven is the number which is perfect and complete. Six is the number which is unfinished and imperfect. The pots were there for the Jewish rite of purification. That is, for religious ceremonial washings. If the family belonged to the Pharisaic school of Judaism, they would have had to go undergo seven ritual washings before eating. Jesus came from a more liberal school, and he and his disciples washed only once, according to the scriptures. Is John trying to tell us that Jesus came to do away with the imperfections of the old law and to replace it? with the new wine of the gospel of grace? Then there's the matter of the size of the jars. Each held 20 to 30 gallons. The total amount would be between 120 and 180 gallons of wine, certainly more than a, young t a, a small town wedding could use. Can it be that John is telling us that through Jesus Christ, we are provided with far more than we will ever need. Grace heaped upon grace. The real miracle, of course, is that Jesus first chose to do his reveal, to reveal his glory, not by jumping off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem where everyone could see, nor in the courts of the Pharisees where wise men could debate over it, but in a sort of off-handed way, in a humble home, in a village in Galilee, which we cannot even identify with certainty on a modern map. Who would guess that he would fling away his first miracle, a light-hearted bouquet to romantic love and friendly laughter in the middle of a noisy wedding? Who indeed? Have you ever stopped to consider how many traditional Christian weddings involve a clergy person reminding the couple that marriage is a good thing, which holy estate Christ adorned and beatified by his presence in Cana 
at Galilee? Why do we bring Christ into the wedding ceremony? Because if we bring him into our marriage, it can be so much better and more joyous. Above all, in this quaint and lovely little story, John is proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ is the life of every party, that he is the one who livens things up, brings life abundant for all, even anonymous bridegrooms and brides in the out-of-way peasant village located somewhere in Galilee. As one writer said of this passage, whenever Jesus comes into our lives, there enters a quality which is like turning water into wine. When Jesus enters our lives, there comes a new exhilaration. Tradition says that the author of the fourth, fourth gospel wrote toward the end of his life, uh, reflecting upon the wondrous events that he had witnessed and trying to put it all into perspective. Then he affirms his faith that God actually does save the best wine until last. For Jesus is not only the life of the party at the wedding in Cana, he is also the life of all life, the one who brings meaning and hope and joy to millions who believe in him. At the conclusion of his wonderful book, The Feast of Fools, Harvard theologian Harvey, Harvey Cox gives us the happy reminder that our destiny is not simply a place where injustice is abolished and there is no more crying. It is a city where a delightful wedding feast is in progress, where the laughter rings out, the dance has just begun, and the best wine is still to be served. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. I hope you heard something in this week's message that inspires you, even moves you. To learn more about Union Congregational Church and our ministries, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or you can join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.15 a.m., either here in the sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue or online at facebook.com slash churchbythepark. Our theme music is provided by RKVC. Once again, thank you for listening. And until we meet again, may God's grace and peace be with you.